Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On the first segment of today's program, we welcome independent journalist Dave Lindorf. He's going to tell us the story of a teenage spy who risked his life to save the world. The story of Ted Hall and the Manhattan Project. Later, we welcome two scholars and activists, and we'll discuss their new book. Dan O'Connell and Scott Peters join the program. Their new book is In the Struggle, and it reveals scholars' forgotten role in fighting industrial agribusiness and how they continue to be part of the struggle for agrarian democracy. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In today's segment, Dave Lindorf, veteran journalist, joins us to talk about the new research project he's doing. Never caught Ted Hall, the Soviet's youngest atomic spy, the teenage spy who risked his life to save the world. This involves Cold War history untold. And Dave Lindorf, let me introduce him to tell us this fascinating story today and a film being made about it. Lindorf's a veteran journalist, and from 1991 to 97, he was a Hong Kong bureau correspondent for Business Week, covering Hong Kong and China. He's the author of four books, including The Case for Impeachment. He's a winner of the 2019 Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Journalism and many other awards. He has a degree in Chinese language from Wesleyan University and is a 1975 graduate of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. And Dave Lindorf should be no stranger to the Project Censored audience. We've featured his journalism and his stories in our books many, many, many times over the years. And it is a pleasure and honor to welcome you back, Dave Lindorf. Thanks for having me, Mickey this project you've been working on, it's a doozy. It's an incredible untold history from the Cold War. Can you introduce this and share this story with our audience? I'm co-producer of a film being directed by Steve James, who people may know from Hoop Dreams and Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. I think his latest thing is City So Real about Chicago. Amazing documentarian. He and his producer, Mark Mitten and I have been working on this film now for well over a year on Ted Hall. And it now is fully funded by Participant Films, which has bought it, and it will be released in the spring. It's an amazing story. I'll tell you briefly how I got onto it. In 2017, I wrote a little piece saying that two spies in the Manhattan Project, Ted Hall, who I only at that time stumbled on when I thought of this idea, an 18-year-old spy in the Manhattan Project, youngest physicist in the Manhattan Project, and Klaus Fuchs, who was a well-known major spy in the Manhattan Project, should get posthumous Nobel Peace Prizes because their work in getting the Russians a bomb before the U.S. could preemptively attack them with hundreds of nuclear bombs, probably saved Russia from a Holocaust and the world from a U.S. that could use the bomb at will around the world and had shown its willingness to use it. That's a riveting enough introduction. And a couple of these people that you're talking about, of course, the Rosenbergs are much better known, but some of these characters probably aren't household names. Klaus Fuchs confessed to the British MI5 
because he was feeling conflicted and he also wanted to protect his sister from being arrested, which worked. But he paid a price, spent nine years in jail. And then Ted, who never was arrested, never did a day in jail, even though he was the first person identified as a Soviet spy in the Venona transcripts of Soviet codes that were broken by the precursor to the NSA. So he was known in 1950 as a Soviet spy, period. And he was interrogated in 1951 by the FBI in Chicago for three hours. But that was the last time he was questioned. No more effort was made to nail him. It's very bizarre. Nobody knew about him publicly until 1995 when the NSA released the wartime Venona transcripts translated. And it was discovered that he had been a spy and he came forward and admitted it, living in England. He was at that time terminally ill with kidney cancer. I wrote that little piece saying that they should get the Nobel Peace Prize, figuring I'd be, you know, brutally attacked for praising a modern day Benedict Arnold. And instead, I got a few letters like that, but I got another note three weeks later, an email that said, Dear Dave, I'm reading your article in Counterpunch with tears in my eyes about uh, Ted Hall. I'm Ted's widow, and you're the first journalist who got him. And I went, whoa. And so there was this, uh, at that time, 89-year-old uh, widow in, living in Cambridge in their house. Uh, and I became you know, an email friend of hers. Finally went over there with my wife and spent two days with her talking. And her memory is crystal clear on all of this. Amazing. So eventually, I approached Steve James about it, and he went over there with me, my son, videographer, his top videographer, and his producer, Mark Minton. We spent three days taping Joan, and Steve said, this is a documentary. We're going to do it. And so we have. That's a pretty remarkable story in and of itself, that she saw the piece. Did she tell you how she saw the piece? She's a lefty. She reads the fortnightly version of the London Review of Books, which I have written for. She knew of me. She reads The Nation. She's a very well-read, brilliant woman and also a poet, an excellent poet. You know, one of her big concerns is that she wants Ted's memory to be properly recorded. And it hasn't been. I mean, there was a 2002 PBS show that started out with a dramatic thing saying that, you know, there was this Soviet master spy, Ted Hall. This is a guy who was 18 and 19 years old, volunteered to be a spy, never got trained, didn't have a clue how to be a spy. He and his roommate, Savvy Sachs, communicated by using pages and line numbers from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. They were both Harvard students. None of that was ever picked up by the FBI, whose members probably never read Whitman and wouldn't have known what the hell they were talking about. That was clever, but I wouldn't call him a master spy. I think it was just because they picked a book that they both read and, uh, and it was Leaves of Grass. You're working on several things right now. You've got an article. You're also working on book proposals, but this film... Tell us a little bit more about what's in development, and in particular, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sniffs something out. The FBI suspected something was happening. 
and this is around the same time as the Rosenbergs were capturing attention. What can you tell us about part of that story? There are two mysteries to the story. One is, why was Ted never arrested? Hoover knew that Ted was a spy. He knew because the codebreakers told him the first document that they figured out what it actually said was a very difficult code to crack. Even once you cracked it, it wasn't easy to apply what you learned to the next message. So it was taking ages for them to do it. And they cracked one message, which happened to be referring to a young, I think they even said his age in it, 18 years old, spy at Los Alamos, who was codenamed MLAD, which is Russian for young one. Um, And um, the FBI got on it and they found enough information. They mentioned that his father was a furrier and they traced it out and found out that he was the son of two czarist Russian immigrants to the US, Russian Jewish immigrants who had fled the anti-Semitism in czarist Russia. And he had a, a brother, 11 years older, and a sister. So Hoover got all that. That was not that difficult to find. They were suspicious of him because his brother Ed had gotten his name and Ted's name changed to Hall from Holtzberg because he had been experiencing so much anti-Semitism in getting hired after getting out of City College and going to Caltech. Uh, as an aeronautical engineer. So he wanted to spare himself and his brother that. And they went against the family and changed the name to Hall. So when the FBI saw that, they went, whoa, you know. But Ted was 11 when this name was changed to Hall. So, you know, it was a little much to say, oh, they were planning on becoming spies, right? (laughs) But, you know, that's the way the mentality of these guys works. Anyway, they found out all this stuff. That was 1950 when they found out about Ted. Subsequently, they found out enough about Fuchs to tell MI5, who leaned on him and got him to confess, and they got some information about the Rosenbergs. So that became Hoover's case. But he had this much bigger case of an actual atomic spy, because remember, the Rosenbergs didn't really get nailed for giving atomic secrets. They had some people in Los Alamos, but they didn't really get anything good out of Los Alamos. Ted gave the secret to the implosion system of the plutonium bomb, which he was working on himself, to the Russians. That was a huge thing. So he was a hugely important guy. So even though he was picked up and interrogated once for three hours in 1951, why was he never arrested, tried, and prosecuted? That's one. The other enigma, this is really bizarre. His brother, Ed, was a rocket scientist, worked for the Pentagon, developing missile motors in the late 50s. He also has an interesting older history. In the war, he was a bomber repair guy fixing returned bombers that had been hit with anti-aircraft fire so they could fly again. And he was really good at it. And then after the war, because he was a aeronautical engineer. He went into Germany and helped with finding the V2 and other rocket places and, you know, getting all of that shifted out to the U.S. before the Russians could get it. He then joined an OSS operation going into occupied East Germany right after the war 
and destroying a missile motor factory at night so that the Russians wouldn't get the equipment. And it was a successful campaign. They all got out without getting caught. And then he started working on rocket motors for the Pentagon. By 1954, Ed was promoted to colonel and made director of the U.S. ICBM program, developing the Thor missile, the Atlas missile, which was his idea, the Titan missile, the Minuteman missile, which he actually suggested to the Air Force and helped design uh, and, and became known as Mr. Minuteman, and the Polaris missile before he retired in 1959. So he was totally trusted by the Air Force. He actually rejected a offer of being promoted to general because he wanted to retire. His daughter told me that the Air Force really wanted him to stay on and keep working on missiles for them. And he said, all right, I'll do it if you'll get rid of these corporate executives I have to deal with in the aerospace companies I have to work with, they're all pathetic and I don't want to keep working with them. And they said, well, we can't do that. And he said, well, then I'm out. So he turned down a generalship, which his daughter said it infuriated his wife because he would have had a much higher retirement. And, uh, and he went privately to uh, help the French develop their independent uh, ballistic missile and then moved over to working on the space program. An amazing guy. And Joan told me that when Ted contracted kidney cancer, I said to her, well, what was his, what was his, his brother's attitude towards him, given that he had been spying for the Russians and here Ed was making the missiles that would carry the bombs that Ted helped make? And she said, amazingly, Ted and his brother had a bond of affection that was so strong, Ed never criticized him for what he did. And when Ted got the kidney cancer, Ed immediately flew the family over to England to be with him. And walking with Joan, he collapsed on the sidewalk and completely unconscious. Ambulance took him to the hospital and they found out he almost had no blood because he'd been bleeding internally for, for weeks. And his daughter said, Dad, how could you have done this? How could you have not told us that this was happening? Uh, to you. And he said, we're, listen, we're going to lose this kid. And I wasn't going to let that happen without coming here to see him. That's how he thought of his brother. He was ready to die in an airplane flight with no, uh, from no oxygen just to get there. And he wouldn't tell his family he was bleeding to death internally because he didn't want them to re refuse to let him fly. This is an amazing story. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with veteran journalist Dave Lindorf about Ted Hall, the teenage spy who risked his life to save the world. We'll continue our conversation with Dave Lindorf after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with journalist Dave Lindorf about Ted Hall, the teenage spy who risked his life to save the world. Dave Lindorf has been working on a project that's now turned into what, what easily could be a book and maybe, but is already on its way to being a documentary film. And you've been hearing this fascinating Cold War untold history story about Ted Hall's spying. And Dave Lindorf, you mentioned that there was one book, only one book, 
about Ted Hall spying titled Bombshell, written in 1997, and you said that that was before FBI files were available and so forth. What can you say about that work and maybe a few other things that, that are, are major developments that you've happened to learn since? Well, Bombshell is a, a really beautiful book, very well written. It's by two Cox uh, news reporters who were posted in Moscow in the 90s. So they were there, you know, in Glasnost period. And they were there when the NSA released the Venona Papers. So they read about Ted Hall and they went, holy mackerel, you know, that's a book. And they were in Moscow when you could get details from the KGB files too. So you could get the other side of the story on Ted. But because Ted wasn't dead, they couldn't get the FBI files. You can't get FBI files on people who aren't convicts or dead. And Ted hadn't been convicted of anything. So the files are closed. Their book was written over the period of like 1995-96 and published in 1997. We actually interviewed both of them. They have a dude ranch they run out in uh, Jackson Hole. So we just did an interview with both of them. And they bemoaned the fact that they didn't have those files. What they also didn't have, because it wasn't really a prominent book, is a, a brilliant book that was done by Michio Kaku and Daniel Axelrod, two astrophysicists, and published in, by South End Press in 19, uh, 1987. That book called To Win a Nuclear War, Pentagon Nuclear Strategies. So in their book, they have all the details about his childhood, his upbringing, you know, the brilliance that was discovered in him so early. You know, his brother actually told his parents, who were both immigrants and non-college educated, he said when Ted was six, he went to his parents and he said, I'm taking over Ted's education. He realized his brother was just like super brilliant. And so he got him into college at 14 he actually applied to Columbia at 14, and they said that he got the top score they had seen in his admission test, but they recommended he not come for a couple of years till he got more mature. And so he went to one of the CUNY campuses, but he was bored stiff, and then ended, ended up applying to Harvard at 17 and was admitted as a junior physics major, which is where he went and where he was when he was hired into the Manhattan Project. What was Ted doing in the Manhattan Project? As soon as he got there, it's it's actually interesting. He he was hired along with three other students at Harvard on the recommendation of Professor John Van Fleck. And Ted was the youngest of them. The second youngest was Roy Glauber, who became a Nobel physicist for his quantum theory discoveries and wound up teaching at Harvard. And then uh, two graduate students. So when they took a train in January of 1944 to Los Alamos and Lauber and Ted got adjacent rooms, Lauber was assigned to the plutonium bomb and Ted was assigned to calculating the critical mass of uranium. And they were talking and Glauber, who was really interested in theory, said, you're lucky, I wish I were doing that. And Ted said, well, I don't care what I'm doing. So if you want to do that, I'll take what you're doing. And so they asked and they got switched. Well, it turned out to be a critical event because it seemed like a casual thing, but Ted wound up doing the testing of the implosion system 
for the plutonium bomb, which is a very complicated system. Plutonium is a hugely unstable element and you can't just put it together in a slightly subcritical amount and add a little more and make the explosion happen like you can with uranium. Uranium-235, you take two halves, put one half at the end of a cannon, put the other one in front of the charge and fire it at the other half. And when they hit, it turns into a nuclear explosion. It's, it's very simple. Any dingbat could do it if you could get the U-235, which is hard to get, a hugely expensive project as the, as the Iranians are finding out. But the plutonium bomb is super complicated because if you try something like that, the plutonium starts to go critical as it approaches its, uh, the other half, and you end up getting a fizzle of a sort of a dud explosion. You don't get a real bomb. So someone came up with the bright idea of a hollow sphere that you hit from every side simultaneously and crush into a supercritical size so that it goes off instantaneously. But how you get that to happen was challenging for them. So Ted was doing that test and he was using something called ladinum, which showed the results without making a bomb go off. And so he was doing that explosion over and over, creating a neutron surge, which is probably how he got the kidney cancer. The point is that he knew the exact construction of the plutonium bomb. And so that's what he decided in late 1944, before his 19th birthday, he concluded that the bomb was not going to be used for the Germans. The Germans were going to lose the war. And the real focus of the U.S. wanting to get the bomb was to have it after the war to have a monopoly on it for years and maybe to prevent the Russians from ever getting it by bombing the crap out of them with, the, with America's nuclear weapons and, and using it everywhere else, too. As you know, we've seen how they killed over six million people since World War II without nuclear weapons. Think what they would have done if they'd had nuclear weapons and nobody to challenge them. And so how did Hall end up working as this spy? That's an amazing story, which Bombshell tells really beautifully. He decided that he had to be a spy. He was talking with his roommate, Savile Sachs, who was not a nuclear physicist, but was more of a literary type, but who also was more of a communist. And Ted was talking with him and saying, I think that the Russians need to get the bomb. And he was not the only person to say that, by the way. I mean, many, many scientists in the Manhattan Project felt that Russia, who was our ally, should be in on the project, especially if it was a race to get it done. If you thought it was for Germany, why not bring these great Russian scientists in on it and get it done faster? But the U.S. was dead set against it. And so it started making people suspicious. Niels Bohr and Leo Szilard made petitions to Roosevelt and Truman to get them to let the Russians in on the secret, at least, that we were doing it and maybe bring them in on it, and then try to get the bomb banned. Both of them were rejected, and both of them became suspected and were followed by the FBI after that. Szilard organized a petition of more than 40 signatures of scientists to try to get Truman not to use the bomb on Japanese cities. That was ignored. In fact, I think General Groves kept the petition from being given to Truman, not that it would have changed Truman's mind. We've had Peter Kuznick on a number of times. Kuznick knows all about that. At any rate, Ched was not alone in this. It's just that unlike those guys who were trying to go about it kind of legally, he decided this isn't going to work 
somebody's got to give the secret to the Russians because they're the only ones who could stop this from happening. And so not knowing that any other Russian spies were in the project, and actually there were 26 others, uh, but he didn't know it. The Russians kept everybody separate. Any U.S. assets were completely separate, had different careers, everything. So did Hall so seek them out? He sought them out. <laughs> Nobody would have looked for an 18-year-old kid to be a spy. And so Ted decided that he would get a leave for his 19th birthday to go be with his family in New York. And he would use that time to try and find a Soviet spy. It's like a totally crazy idea. They described it as sort of a Woody Allen-esque kind of effort to do something stupid that nobody could do. Because a spy is trying to keep from being discovered, right? So how is, that, how is a teenager who doesn't even speak Russian go and try to find a Soviet spy? It, it's a mind-bending thing, you know? Well, what happened was, Savvy went to the Russian consulate and said he had a friend who was a spy on a top secret project and wanted to give them some information. He was thrown out. Ted went to the U.S. Communist Party headquarters. Savvy went to the consulate because he told Ted, if you go there, the FBI is going to spot you because they'll be looking for someone from the Manhattan Project giving secrets. So Ted said, OK, well, I'll go to the U.S. Communist Party and ask them. So he went to the U.S. Communist Party headquarters in New York. He went in and said, I'm working on a secret project for a super powerful weapon, and I want to give the information to a Russian agent. And the Communist Party threw him out of the office. But somebody had the chutzpah to suggest he go to Amtorg, which was the trading company for the USSR in New York, to buy you know, supplies and to help sell products from Russia. So Ted went to Amtorg. It was in a loft in the garment district. He gets on a freight elevator, and there was an American worker at Amtorg who was in the elevator with him. Think about that a minute. An American working in Amtorg, which was turned out to be a nest of spies. It was a nest of spies because it provided perfect cover for them. So for an American to be there, it had to be a communist, right? It had to be somebody who was really trusted by the Russians. It was either an FBI agent undercover or it was an American communist with good connections, so the Russians trusted him. And so the guy says to Ted, what do you, you know, he's, he says, uh, you know, where is Amtorg's office? And the guy says, why do you want to go there? And he tells him, right? And so the guy says, oh, well, you don't, you don't want to go to Amtorg. You should go see this Russian novelist named Sergei Kornikov, who might be able to steer you somewhere. So he gives him an address for Kornikov. Well, Kornikov was actually a top Russian NKVD spy, but he also was a fascinating character. He, he'd been a cavalry officer under the Tsar in World War I, you know, as a dashing guy and a novelist and, you know, had been in uh, this Spanish Civil War, a real character. And he had left the Soviet Union and come to the U.S. And then he became a spy for the Russians. So, so Ted went to the right guy by this curious route. And he told them, and the guy didn't say, I'm a spy. He just said, you know, what do you want? And Ted said, he was working in, at this secret project. And the guy said, well, I can't do anything with it, but if you want to leave it with me, I might be able to find somebody who could. It went into the pouch and went directly to Moscow. They looked at it and said, holy crap, this is the real thing. So Ted was taken on as a spy. It worked. He had in mind 
how chemical weapons and germ weapons were banned after World War I because of yeah, right. the horror that everybody saw of those weapons. So he thought if the U.S. has a monopoly, it'll be horrible. But if Russia has the bomb and the U.S. have the bomb, there'll be like this standoff and you know, the whole world will decide and the U.S. and the Russians will decide we've got to ban these things. It was a logical thought, but that's not the way it worked out. It worked out instead that there was this massive arms race, incredible wasteful spending, and this nightmarish mad where we came very close to having nuclear war many times, but never did. The U.S. many times came very close to launching nuclear first strikes in Korea, in Berlin, early on in, in the Berlin crisis, the blockade, and even before that, when the Russians were going to take over part of Iran's oil fields at the end of the war, as part of the Yalta Agreement, and the U.S. and Britain decided, no, Russians put their troops right on the Iranian border. And Truman said, if you don't move back in 48 hours, I'm going to bomb you. And they knew what that bomb meant. And they pulled back. That could have gone badly. And many other times after the Russians had the bomb, the U.S. came very close, Cuban Missile Crisis. Vietnam, Dien Bien Phu, to aid the French who were trapped, and then Quezon to aid the Marines who were trapped. In that one, the bombs were actually shipped across the Pacific to be used, and then Johnson said no. That was done without Johnson's permission. So Ted was right that Russians having the bombs stopped it from happening. And the way I look at it is mad, objectively looking at it, has given us 76 years of no nuclear weapon being used in war since Nagasaki. That's indisputable. Mutually assured destruction, the term that we had mentioned earlier. Well, Dave Lindorf, we're about out of time in this segment. Anything you'd like to say in conclusion about the film? Anything else we could be looking for? First of all, people should be looking for the film in the spring. We're hoping to have it in festivals. I'm hoping to get a book contract so that we can have a book come out much more detail about Ted's story at the same time as the film. And the title of the film? Tentatively, it's called Joan and Ted, the Los Alamos Spy Who Saved the World. Dave Lindorf, you always do incredible work. This sounds like an absolutely fascinating story, certainly an untold history. We're definitely looking forward to it. So we're going to have you back on the program to give us some updates about this, and we'll certainly look forward to seeing the film. So Dave Lindorf, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored Show today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Up next on the program, we'll discuss a new book, In the Struggle, scholars' forgotten role in fighting industrial agribusiness and how they continue to be part of the struggle for agrarian democracy. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. California's Central Valley is both a stronghold of industrial agriculture and the cradle of a rural resistance movement that still burns bright. Right now on the Project Censored show, I welcome the authors of a new book, In the Struggle, Scholars and the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. That's a new Village Press book out July 2021. The authors are Daniel J. O'Connell and Scott Peters. To uh, let me elaborate a little more, give a little more background on our authors here, Daniel O'Connell is executive director of the Central Valley Partnership, a regional nonprofit organization and progressive network of labor unions, environmental organizations, and community groups spanning the San Joaquin Valley. Trained as a multidisciplinary ethnographer, 
He holds a Master's of Science in International Agricultural Development from the University of California, Davis, and a PhD in Education from Cornell University. As a politically engaged scholar, his work is dedicated to achieving social, racial, environmental, and economic justice in California. Daniel O'Connell, welcome to the Project Censored Show. So nice to be here, Mickey. Scott Peters is professor in the Department of Global Development at Cornell University and a historian of American higher education's public purposes and work. He has spent the past 20 years as a leader in civic engagement movement in American higher education, most recently serving as faculty co-director of Imagining America, Artists and Scholars in Public Life. He is lead author of Democracy and Higher Education, Traditions and Stories of Civic Engagement. He is also co-editor of the Cornell University Press book series, Publicly Engaged Scholars, Identities, Purposes, and Practices. Today, the topic, In the Struggle. This is a new book that looks at the industrial agribusiness and the struggle against the corporatization of agriculture. In fact, specifically, we're going to talk about the industrial agricultural rise, its impacts on community. We'll also be talking, of course, about how workers can resist this, and we'll be talking in general about the importance of community engagement and values around said struggle. Um, Let's start with you, Dan. The book starts out, and it is a mosaic of narratives of several people over a century. So could you lay out how you got into developing a book like this, and then uh, we'll take it from there. I come at this as an activist and one that was frustrated at not having a bigger impact after the Gulf Wars in the 80s, the imperialism, and seeing the discontinuities and the costs of capitalist intrusion into our communities and a lot of direct action in those years, especially about an environment. And so the book is my effort to become a better activist. And really, you could see that knowledge begins to be framed as ammunition here. And the book itself is is heavy artillery, if you will, and took 20 years to do. And now it can be deployed. We're grateful that New Village Press has offered us that opportunity. And we have times like this to speak with you and other folks about it. Yeah, fascinating. You, you begin the book. It says that, that the book aims to be useful like a guidebook as it maps a battlefield acting across four generations of organizing and research. You write here that the stories and findings lay out a history of engagement with scholars positioned as political actors on fields of struggle, and in this case, literally fields. And you write across time, they inform and teach. They show us how to fight and what's worth fighting for. So running with that metaphor, let's hear from Scott Peters. How would you define the process of this book and what you're laying out here? One thing people might be curious about when they look at the title of the book is that word scholars that shows up as the first word of the subtitle. As Dan mentioned, what we have done in this book is we have traced this story that goes from the 1920s and 30s all the way up into the present in which scholars, both people who were employed by colleges and universities, but actually half of the eight scholars in the book were independent of universities and colleges. And what we trace is the way in which they realized and pursued the significance and importance of knowledge for fighting political battles and struggles. As Dan mentioned, what we learn from these scholars is that the production of knowledge, both the process of producing knowledge and the knowledge itself and how it's deployed and used, becomes ammunition, strategic ammunition in political battles and fights. 
So what the book does is it traces this kind of long relay race. All of these scholars knew each other, some closely, some not so closely. They all sort of handed a baton off across that century of time. And the work that it illuminates helps all of us understand better what role knowledge and theory and ideas can play in, in political work and struggles. This is something that people maybe don't think about as much as certain other kinds of things when they think about political work. But in the history of agribusiness, the struggle against agribusiness, it's turned out to be critically important. This work is the embodiment of theory and praxis. This is a direct example of the co-joined efforts of understanding, studying things, not abstractly, but in a way that directly applies not just to people's individual lives, but communities. And then overall, in terms of how we feed each other and how so many things around community really stem from agriculture. I think that that itself has been abstracted by the corporate co-option and the rise of industrial agriculture. It's really robbed people and communities in a lot of ways of that innate natural historical connection going back thousands of years. You profile the eight scholars and you start with Walter Goldschmidt. I think Dan laying out the Walter Goldschmidt study is, is really useful for listeners to hear. So you literally see at the beginning of the book, Walter Goldschmidt at 93 years old, handing me his research notes as he knows he's going to be passing away soon. And at the end is a final interview. He said, you better take this because I'm going to be gone soon. I'm not going to last long. And so the, the literal handoff opens the book with Walter. He went by Wally handing me this information in that the fight wasn't done yet. And what got me into the fight a decade before that was finishing my master's at UC Davis uh, in international ag development, having done a research on how social segregation was happening in rural communities. That book, which is called As You Sow, A Biblical Forewarning. And when you enter into the story through Goldschmidt, and as I did at that time, you realize that the Arvind Dinuba study that was going to direct who should get water in compliance with federal law, they were already seeking ways to avoid compliance with the Reclamation Law of 1902, which stipulated that the water from the dams of the Central Valley Project should go to farmers of 160 acres or less, and you had to be a resident on the farm, small farmers in definition. And in the law, few people know, was that if you had more than 160 acres, you were allowed to access that public resource, but for only 10 years, and then you had to sell all land in excess of 160 acres. So there was a land reform built into reclamation law to redistribute land and property in California. That law was never followed, never implemented. In 1958, a US Supreme Court 9-0 decision said implement the law, still not implemented. And then in 1978, George Ballas and others sued to get it implemented. And finally, we had the Dems cratered and Reagan overturned it in 83. That censored in when the Arvin and Dinuba study was done, Arvin surrounded by large farms, Dinuba by small farms, and empirically starts showing that small farm communities are more robust and healthy than large farm communities. That was censored. And a follow-up study of 25 towns using statistics was suppressed. And there I come in as an activist in my master's program at the end, realizing that doesn't pass the smell test. And then you get into the fight that draws you in, as Trudy Wisterman says, to the river, which now it's another decade or two down the line. And I'm investing my life in fighting this now from that small beginning. 
that's a pretty incredible story from the beginning. Can you talk any, any more about this? What, what elements of this is, are censored? I mean, we can imagine why, but can you go into any more detail about the suppression of the Arvin and the Nuba studies? So the research details a lot of strategies on how to engage government and how to mobilize community. At first, I'd say that there was an effort just to understand the agricultural system as it evolved in California. And that goes back to Paul Taylor, who was the mentor of Walter Goldschmidt himself, partnering with Dorothea Lange to interrogate this system. He was investigated repeatedly by the FBI during the McCarthy era. This is an era where academics had to sign loyalty oaths. Taylor chooses multiple means, first of all, to delineate and understand agriculture in California. He comes from the Midwest. He comes from an area that was settled under the Homestead Act, which was all 160 acres on top of indigenously occupied land, yes, but more democratic. And so he came from seeing small towns in the Midwest when it was still small farmers to California, which from the beginning, Mickey, never permitted even the in investigation and understanding of industrial agriculture. The University of California never had a Department of Rural Sociology. It was only until the 60s and 70s that they hired their first rural sociologist that we know of. They are in the book. So the censorship of the Arvind Dinuba study is within a mix of also institutionalized pressures, the intimidation that was put on research, and the disallowing of even inquiry itself by public universities into the most important facets of our economy and society. Come in here, Scott. I was just going to say one thing about this story I think people need to really understand. The study that Walter Goldschmidt of these two communities looking at the um, differences between them was funded by the federal government through the Department of Agriculture. There was something created in the department called the Bureau of Agricultural Economics. And amazingly, a lot of fairly progressive-minded economists and social scientists ended up working for it in the 1920s and 30s. And it became a real force for democratic values. They, in fact, organized the largest farmer discussion group initiative in the entire history of the United States. As hundreds of thousands of farmers uh, having discussions in each other's homes about key international issues, because Henry Wallace, who is a real character, wanted to hear farmers' voices, wanted them to show up on his desk. But Walter Goldschmidt's study was an embodiment of their commitment to look at the way in which agriculture was developing in relation to democratic values that they held dear. Many of these people held quite dear. So Goldschmidt's study was one piece of a larger enterprise. And to make a very long story short, because we don't have a lot of time, the Bureau of Agricultural Economics was essentially shut down by the, by the American Farm Bureau Federation. The legislators they had in their pocket, they didn't want somebody messing around with how farmers were thinking about public policy. They shut it down. And the censoring that happened was all part of that kind of interconnection between this, this powerful farm interest in the form of the Farm Bureau, the agribusiness corporations, many of whom were very involved in trying to make sure that legislation wasn't happening that was going to hurt them. That's the story here. And what's really great is the book for me, hopefully for readers of this book, is that this isn't just a depressing story of horrible censorship and horrible disaster. As Dan said at the beginning, 
This is a story of people who have learned to develop power strategically in the form of knowledge and to deploy that as ammunition. This is a story that's growing in importance and significance as people like Janaki, who is the person we highlight in the last chapter, are um, deploying themselves in the Central Valley and elsewhere. You tell the story through eight scholars and activists throughout the 20th century. Just the Goldschmidt narrative itself is fairly amazing. And, and as you, you noted, Henry Wallace, I mean, again, we've talked about him on the program before with Peter Kuznick. Wallace is a central figure in some of uh, Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick's untold history work. We still need people in political positions who can hear these arguments. There's so many multifaceted areas and so many points of entry into your study and into what you're doing in the book that, again, seem to reverberate outside of the specific issue of industrial agriculture. I mean, just really into to community engagement, democratic engagement, and just community building. You have story after story after story of people struggling to be heard Early on, you'll see Ernesto Galarza, who comes from Mexico after the revolution, is a farm worker around Sacramento when he was five years old. He had multiple jobs. He ends up going to Occidental College for undergrad, Stanford for his master's, and Columbia for his PhD. And then what does he do? He comes back in the San Joaquin Valley to organize farm workers in the era of the Braceros Project. And so I think here you have somebody that wasn't starry-eyed about the possibilities of science and its limitations who knew exactly the oppressiveness and the racialized segregation and institutionalized racism that was happening. Over the time of the narrative, you'll see an evolution as the scholars get in, they see and are warned by the preceding scholars of what's happening and, and especially the lack of freedom or the constraints of campus-based research. Don Villarejo and Isa Fujimoto start deploying their students, as did Galarza, into communities. Galarza did it in San Jose after he finished his labor organizing. But Villarejo and Fujimoto, in a much more open cultural terrain of the civil rights and, and the movement during the 60s and 70s, unleashed students who were demanding relevance in those eras for universities to respond to problem solving, the injustices in their own society and problems in the world. And those students partnered with labor unions, with community groups, in ways that are indicative of a Peace Corps volunteer or a SNCC organizer, I would say, is a better analysis of how to even survive living out of a car. So this isn't cushy student internships. These are people learning to survive and ally with movement in the moment of change. And this is where I think the book starts hinting at where we need to have our institutions begin to get better at their academic praxis. I think you need to start looking at Antonio Gramsci and this kind of organic intellectual that's not feigning values or being objective, literally punching away at power structures and also building community power. I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacific Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Dan O'Connell and Scott Peters, authors of a new book, In the Struggle, Scholars in the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In today's program, in this segment, we are joined by two scholars and activists, Dan O'Connell and Scott Peters. Their new book, In the Struggle, Scholars in the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. Scott Peters, you want to come in here? As we reflect and talk about this book after being immersed in the study for so long, one of the characters that I have such a deep respect for is Isao Fujimoto, who 
was a great mentor for Dan and a friend for Dan and somebody I've been able to meet and spend some time with. I want to say that what's so important about Esau is that he was not somebody who put himself in the spotlight. What he did is he created opportunities for students and community folks on the ground to create knowledge about what is happening. I mean, he would ask his students, what is this place, the Central Valley? What's happening here? And then he would engage them in what is action research. And he wrote about that. And they were out there on the front lines getting immersed in this work. And they weren't just acting. They were actually building knowledge and theory and that that would then become deployed back into the work. So as a teacher, Esau was a scholar on the ground who was engaging himself on the front lines, but he was also building and refining and testing knowledge about strategy, about what's happening, about opportunities for pursuing the positive kind of society that we want. That's one of the things we get from this book that is very different from people like Dean McCannell or Walter Goldschmidt doing these high-end studies. Esau did studies and he did publishing, but he mostly created these opportunities and lit fires under students to be out there in the world. And he faced a lot of pushback for that work, but he also was able to become essentially a legend because of the affection people had for him and the admiration they had for him. It's not all about one kind of scholar doing one kind of thing. The both of you do a masterful job of weaving those narratives and, and really having these historical figures tell the stories which is very powerful in so many ways. And as Dan was saying, the case that's laid out seems to make it abundantly clear that industrial agriculture is not, is not good for community. It's not good for societal arrangement. It's not necessarily even in the best interest of the overall economy. But let's get to the political economy. Industrial agriculture is a major force in our political world, arguably more so now. There's a lot in this book. First of all, it's authored by 10 of us. Each chapter is an author speaking in their own voice. And so what is happening here is there's a critical topography that's laid out over time. We designed it this way, a bricolage of stories, if you will, a mosaic that comes into focus as you step back, but any one story is compelling in its own right. These stories told in the first person voice of people that are getting beaten up, fighting for us, are extraordinarily compelling and invite us into the fight. We want this book to get people into the fight. In the Struggle not only is a call for scholars and universities to do better praxis and better academic work and research and education, it's a call to arms, a call to action, and we tried to keep it in stories to mobilize people to help them understand what scholars have done. So I think that realizes a third level of validity as well. When you see the scholars fighting for us, the community, the public, and the intense pressure that was put on them and threats, I think that it shows what I sometimes say, you know, I refer to Jack Nicholson's Chinatown. This is Chinatown on steroids. And if we want to have a democracy, we must have an equitable economy. They are contingent upon each other. And Paul Taylor once said, the academic disciplines of political science and economics should have never been disconnected. Well, they were disconnected for reasons, <laughs> as we can see, right? You know, and, and in this case, what you're embodying too is scholar as worker, worker as scholar, a melding. And, and look, this really does go across racial and class lines. It, 
it's a way of reintegrating, if you will, that which was separated. Industrial agriculture did a lot to separate communities, not just from each other, but individuals from the earth. Scott, I wanted to bring you in here. What are your thoughts on the ever encroaching of any corporate entity over whether it be regulatory capture, influence on the university, and the impact that you think that actually ends up having? I think what's important to voice here is that so many people have become increasingly dissatisfied with those forces of separation and disconnection. Because you know what it produces in the end is it produces a life with very little meaning and significance and joy. When you're disconnected from other people, you're disconnected from opportunities for all the things that are valuable and good in life. The food system is one thing that should be so deeply interconnected in everything about our culture and society. The good news is that even despite all of the forces that have done this separation, that have put it into policy, that have you know worked it through our institutions, even in the face of all that, young people today who come to study with me at Cornell, who come to study at the in the California system, both at its community, you know, in community colleges, state colleges, universities, many of those students are just hungering for connection. They're hungering for ways to express the values that they have, the aspirations that they have. So as much as it's useful to focus on the continuing destructive power of industrial agribusiness, which is certainly there, and and there is huge destructive power, as much as it's important to understand that, uh, it's, it's of equal or even more importance to understand where are the sources of power we have that we can be tapping and engaging. And it's in that diversity, it's in the ideals of agroecology, that emerging movement, international movement that is capturing the attention and the energy of young people. So that's really where the book ends. It doesn't end with a sorrowful kind of voice. It ends with a wonderful voice of, of, of promise and hope. Scott Peters, thank you so much for joining us. Dan O'Connell, a place where people can contact. I lead an organization of labor unions, environmental groups, and community groups called the Central Valley Partnership. You know, the kind of injustices that are permitted four hours from Berkeley are, are immoral, and we could use some help and assistance, both from institutions <laughs> like public universities, which has happened in the 30s and 60s. This is, in some ways, the real California, and so don't ignore it and how important it is. The struggle continues and weigh in and turn the tide. I want to thank the publicist, Laura Grano, for putting this on my radar. The book is In the Struggle, Scholars and the Fight Against Industrial Agribusiness in California. Dan O'Connell, Scott Peters. Authors, I want to thank the both of you gentlemen for joining us on the Project Censored Show today to address this very crucial subject. Thank you. Thanks, Mickey. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
minds political ties, habitualized alibis, disguise, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks and all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, kill the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that.